0: On well, Father's Day, I have uh, four questions that I'd like to go over this morning about Father's Day. The first one is uh, the history. What is the history of Father's Day? The second one, this is what does the Bible say about Father's Day? And what does, and is God the father of the fatherless? And the last one is what the Bible says about Christian fathers. So let us, uh, let me open in prayer just before we get into Word, into His Word. Heavenly Father, we just, uh, thank you. You are our Heavenly Father. You lead the fathers here, Lord, the Christian fathers that want to follow you, Lord. Just lead us through Your Word this morning, Lord. Speak to me. Help me to say what I need to say and not to say what I shouldn't say, Lord. Just uh, speak to me. And, uh, I just, just thank you for this opportunity to, to bring your word forth, us. And uh, I just give you all the praise and honor and glory for that. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Father's Day, or the history of Father's Day. Father's Day is a day set apart to celebrate fatherhood and recognize the influence of fathers in our homes and society. It is also celebrated to honor and commemorate our fathers and forefathers. It is celebrated in the U.S. on the third Sunday of June and is believed that Father's Day was first observed on June 19, 1910 in Spokane, Washington. Through the efforts of Sonora Smart Dodd, a Christian woman and daughter of American Civil War veteran William Jackson Smart. Sonora's mother died when she was age 16 And she wanted a day that would commemorate and honor fathers like her own who had raised her and her five children or five siblings. Once once she began soliciting the idea of an official Father's Day, she met with some opposition, but she persevered. A bill was introduced in Congress in 1913, and in 1916, President Woodrow Wilson spoke at a Father's Day celebration in Spokane, Washington, And wanting to make it a national committee, and wanting to make it a national holiday, but the Congress still resisted. In 1924, Calvin Cooley became involved, and in 1930, a national committee was formed by various trade groups in an effort to legitimize the holiday. The battle continued, and in 1966, President Lyndon Johnson made a proclamation for the third Sunday of June to be Father's Day. It was finally made official holiday when President Nixon signed a similar proclamation in 1972. It only took 62 years or so to to get through Congress to make it official. (laughs) That seems normal. (laughs) So... Just another tidbit here. Today's economists estimate that Americans spend more than one billion each year on Father's Day's gifts. That's a, that's a lot of ties. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, second, the second point I wanted to say, what does the Bible say about Father's Day? Well, it doesn't say too much about the Father's Day that we celebrate. But God's Word uh, does say, does set, a, set aside a special honor to fathers and it does recognize a special place for honor for men who were leaders and or examples of excellence in their skills. I just uh, name a couple here. There's quite a few in the Bible, but I'm just going to name a couple. In Genesis four twenty, if I pronounce this wrong, forgive me, Jabel, the father of those who lived in tents and raised livestock. He was honored as the father of those. In Genesis four twenty one, his brother Jubal was the father of all who play the harp and flute, and in Genesis twenty two, Tubal Cain was the instructor of every craftsman of metal urging. Also, when Abram's name was changed to Abraham, God told him, I have made you a father of many nations. In Genesis seventeen five, it clearly indicates fatherhood as a place of honor in the eye and in God's eyes. Even though the Bible doesn't mention a Father's Day, we can clearly see that God does recognize the importance of fathers and even gave them special honors throughout history. The Apostle Paul taught that to honor one's earthly father is not only a commandment, but the first commandment that when obeyed has a promise of things going well and have long life. That's in Ephesians 6, 2 and 3. In light of these verses and many others, it would seem to be perfectly God-honoring to celebrate a day in which fathers, the God-given head of the family, could and should be honored. The third point, is God the father of the fatherless? And that answer is yes. And Psalm 68.5 says, A father of the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy habitation. Of all the ways the Lord God Almighty could have chosen to relate to humanity, he chose the language of family. He could have described himself as a benevolent dictator, kind boss, or patient landlord, but he instead chose the word father. He presents himself as a father because we all know what a father is and does. Even if we don't have an earthly father who is treated as well, we have an understanding of what a good father should be. God planted that understanding in our hearts. We have, we all have a need to be loved, cherished, protected, and valued. Ideally, an earthly father will meet those needs. But even if he doesn't, God will. Throughout Scripture, God describes his love for us as that of a caring parent. Second Corinthians 6.18 says, I will be a father... To you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. And although he possesses both the characteristics of both of a mother and a father, you see that in Isaiah 66:13 it says, "As one whom his mother comforts you, as one who is, as one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you, and you shall be comforted in Jerusalem. But he chooses the masculine word because it, it denotes strength, protection, and provision. God has a special place in his heart for the orphans and fatherless. In Psalms 27.10 it says, When my father and mother forsake me, then the Lord will take care of me. And God knows that many times earthly fathers have been absent or have not done their job. And uh, at this I'd like to read a a quote and a few paragraphs from Stu Weber's book, Four Pillars of a Man's Heart. It's one we're reading, through as elders. And it says, he, he says this. He says, Something's wrong in the heartland. How are we to explain this rapid erosion of standards? How do we rationalize the breakdown of families, neighborhoods on edge, streets no longer safe, the death's wishes of our children? What has happened? How do we account for this disaster? With all my heart, I believe we can trace this disaster back to the failure in high office. Yes, I'm referring to the highest office in the land. And no, I don't mean the presidency of the United States, nor the presidency of any international conglomerate, nor chairman of board. I believe the greatest position a man can hold is his office of the home. A man's greatest title is not Dr. So-and-so, or professor, or general, or Mr. Vice President, or even reverend. The highest office in the land is not the White House. It's your home. God's economy, in God's economy, a man will never get any higher, never have any greater influence, never wield any greater power than he does as head of the household. To fail at home is to fail everywhere. And that's where man, and that's where men are made, is at home. The United States is becoming an increasingly fatherless society. Fatherless, fatherlessness is the most harmful democratic trend of any generation. And, and that is sad. And that's the end of the quote. It says, but, but God offers to fill that role of a father. And John 6.37 6, says, All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. And that's a promise from God, and, and he keeps his promises. God promises that in him no one has to be without a Father. And we don't have to. If we, if we, for some reason, that we don't have a father influence in our house, we can go to God and he can be our, be our father. So what does the Bible say about the Christian father? Come to our last point. I'd like to turn to Deuteronomy 6 and read 1 through 9, if you'd like to turn there. Now this is the commandment and these are the statutes of judgment which the Lord your God has commanded to teach you that you may observe them in the land which you are crossing over to possess that you may fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments which I command you you and your sons and your grandsons all the days of your life and that your days may be prolonged Therefore, hear O Israel, and be careful to observe it, that it may be well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord your God of your fathers has promised you, a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear O Israel, the Lord your God is the hear O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lay down, when you rise up. You shall bind them on the, as a sign on your hand and as they be in, as frontals between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates." I'd like to just concentrate on uh, two verses six and seven this is uh, the and the, the but the beginning of it it says the commandments was to love your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and to follow his ways from generation to generation and I'd like to read six and seven again but um, and he says these words which I command you today you shall be it shall be in your heart and this is the most, one of the most important things that, as men, we should be doing. We should teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house. You shall walk by the way when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. In other words, you need to talk about them in everyday tasks and in life itself. Not just once in a while, but in everything that you do, you need to share the word of God. <clears throat> okay. in other words talk about an everyday task in itself Israelite history reveals that the father was to be diligent in instructing his children in the ways and the words of the Lord for their own spiritual development and well-being the father who was obedient to the commands of scripture did just that And this brings us to Proverbs 22, 6. Train a child in the way he should go. And when he is old, he will not turn from it. To train indicates the first instruction that a father and mother give to a child in early education. The training is designed to make clear to children the manner of life they are intended for. And we are intended. That's why we're here, to worship God. That's why... God created us to worship him. In Ephesians 6, 4, it says, And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admiration of the Lord. And this is a summary of instruction to fathers. It's stated both in a negative and a positive way. A Christian father is, is really an instrument of God's hand. The whole process of instruction and discipline must be that of which God commands and which he administers. So that his authority should should be brought into constant and immediate contact with the mind, heart, and conscience of the children. The human father should never present himself as an ultimate authority to determine truth and duty. It It is only by making God the teacher and ruler on whose authority everything is done, that the goal of education can be attained. A wise father seeks to make obedience desirable and attainable by love and gentleness. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction and in righteousness, that a man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. In other words, we are equipping the future generations. If one generation doesn't do this, we drop the ball. We need to keep giving God's word to the generations. That's that's why we're here today, worshiping the Lord and His Word, equipping the next generation. The, the kids that were up here just, just earlier, man, what a blessing. We're, we're equipping them it's by means of a Bible, uh, vacation Bible school, but that's still equipping them. That's getting them into the Word. It's fun, and that's what God's Word is, wants us to be. Have fun, but yet be serious about His Word. <clears throat> a father's first responsibility to his, to, is to acquaint his children with Scripture. The means and methods that the father may use to teach God's truth will vary. As a father is a faithful role model, what children learn about God will put them in good standing throughout their earthly lives. And no matter what they do or where they go, they will remember that. And in closing, I know this is short, that's why they have me do it, because they know I can do it short. And in closing, the spiritual walk of a Christian man must be rooted in his spiritual wealth. You understand that? Rooted in his spiritual wealth means he's in the Word, learning the Word. And the best thing any father could do for his children is to love and cherish their mother. That's it. Amen.